part one, chapters one through three, were Jesus' messages to the seven churches of Asia Minor and the, the churches throughout all time. Part two of Revelation, chapters four through 11, is a vision of the days of vengeance or the last days that have come upon apostate Israel. These end times are the times of the end of the old covenant. Therefore, no more sacrifices, no more exclusive priesthood, no more temple, no more bondage to the law. But gloriously, while Christ brings an end to the old, he forever establishes the new covenant, which we just sang about. And worship erupts as part two of Revelation concludes with the earth becoming the kingdom of Christ, with the holy of holies being opened to all people. And then we come to part three of Revelation, chapters 12 through 22. It's another vision of the exact same covenantal realities. And yet part three is elaborating, expanding, exploring more deeply those visions of part two. And that's going to become especially clear today brothers and sisters, as we look at Revelation 19 and we begin to see the wonders of the new covenant bursting out of the ashes of the old. Chapter 19 of Revelation begins to explore what this new covenant looks like. We've been been seeing the end of the old covenant almost exclusively in part three of Revelation. Now we will begin to see the new covenant as it emerges out of the ashes of the old, revealing incredible realities that are true right now. And it will give us a view into some realities that are yet to come, not in chapter 19, but soon. Things that will come at the close of history. So again, part three of Revelation is going to open to us in dramatic fashion what part two of Revelation was only summarizing. And chapter 19 is the beginning of this revealing of the new covenant. No more will we move through, or no more will we be looking at destruction. No more will Revelation focus on the cataclysmic ending of the old covenant. Now we behold what is new. And so as we do this today, as we begin this transition in chapter 19, I'm going to take this chapter in three distinct parts or sections Because each one is giving us a picture of new covenant realities, things that are true for us right now. And then I want you to be filled with hope, with joy, with kingdom-advancing motivation as we look at these things. They are glorious things. So let's do it. Let's read chapter 19. Follow along with me. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who has corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen! Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roaring of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, 
and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty, on, and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings. And Lord of Lords, then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast And the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who who in its presence had done the signs by which deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. (laughs) Father, oh God, give us wisdom this morning. Despite the distractions around us and the warm temperature, help us to pay attention to your word. You, the living God, have spoken. Help us to receive it, to understand it truly. And may it spur us on to great kingdom-advancing activity. May we rest joyfully, hopefully, in the reality that we are united to Christ forever and no one will pluck us from his hand and nothing shall separate us from the love of God. Wow, we praise you for these glories coming to us through a body that was pierced and blood that was spilled. Christ, our Savior, our Lord. It's in his name I pray it. Amen. I said there are three distinct parts to chapter 19. Likely in your Bible, they're broken up in headers that way. There's the rejoicing over Jerusalem's fall. There is the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then there is this rider on a white horse. And so I'm going to take these as different sections as as different themes, though there is something that's weaving them all together, and hopefully that becomes clear as we go through it. So part one, this rejoicing. 
Last time I preached, January, no, July, it has been a while. <laughs> July 3rd, I think it was. Um, we looked at that entire chapter, chapter 18, devoted to the fall of Babylon, and Babylon being a symbolic name for Jerusalem. And that chapter was pulling on numerous Old Testament images of covenantal judgments. And for the churches that first read the contents of Revelation, it prophesied a massive New Testament expectation of impending wrath. You, can, you can't read the New Testament without seeing that there's this, this wrath that's coming that seems to be right on the horizon. And so here's one little place where we see that expectation articulated. The Jews killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displease God and oppose all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. And in symbolic symbolic form, chapter 18, verses 21 through 24 announce not just the destruction of Jerusalem, but the destruction of the temple. God no longer dwells in buildings made by human hands. He has divorced apostate Israel, that great idol-worshiping, bloodthirsty harlot seated in Jerusalem. And because of this judgment, all heaven erupts in worship, which now you see in verses 1 and 2. Look at them. We read, After this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven cry out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. A great multitude erupting in worship. I think we should take this as the great multitude that erupted in worship earlier on in Revelation, in chapter 7, where we saw a multitude from every nation and tribe and language and people. So here in chapter 19, these are the elect. This is the church worshiping Jesus because he has brought judgment upon Babylon, has brought destruction to Jerusalem. They shout, hallelujah! Hallelujah. That's a Greek spelling of a Hebrew word or, or phrase. It, may, it means praise ye the Lord or praise Yah as in Yahweh. Here in chapter 19, there are four hallelujahs. The only hallelujahs you find in the entire New Testament. The first hallelujah is for the judgment of Jerusalem. She killed the saints. Whereas Christ said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. Kills the prophets. Remember its prophets. We're going to come back to prophets later in this sermon. In Revelation chapter 6, when we were looking at that, the martyrs who were killed, who were killed by the Jews, cry out for divine vengeance. They cry out, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the land? And then Jesus, prophesying about the destruction of Jerusalem from Luke 21, said, 
For these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. So God has answered the prayers of the martyred church. He has brought the days of vengeance. He has avenged the innocent blood spilled in Jerusalem, judging that harlot that so corrupted covenant with God, turning the covenant with God into a means of self-righteousness. What could be more abominable? Hallelujah. Judgment has come. Verse 3, once more they cry out, Hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. So Jerusalem's not just judged, but destroyed. And now we're being given images from Sodom and Gomorrah of smoke rising up forever and ever. It's not about hell. It's about how Jerusalem has received all the covenant curses of Deuteronomy 28. How God has utterly rejected this city and made them a spiritual, a covenantal desolation. Her fall from glory, from being the dwelling place of God, is eternal. The enemy of the church has fallen. Hallelujah. Now, in my last sermon, which apparently was in January, I spent a lot of time discussing why the church was called to rejoice over something that seems so apparently terrible. So I encourage you to listen to that sermon if you missed it because there's a powerful, powerful reason the church is called to rejoice over destruction. But for now, let's look at verses 4 and 5. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, hallelujah. And from the, the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. So we see the 24 elders again who are, as we have seen, symbolic representatives of the church and they now are falling to the ground again in worship. We sang about that uh, from back in chapter 5 just a few moments ago. There are also the four cherubim who are themselves the embodiment of the created order. They're doing the same, falling down in worship. And then as they do, as the 24 elders and the cherubim worship, there's this voice unidentified voice that emanates from the throne, summoning the entirety of the church to worship God. And here we're seeing an incredible biblical pattern. Revelation's hallelujahs, these four hallelujahs, are echoes of Psalms chapters 113 to 114. The hallelujah chapters of Psalms. 113 to 118. These psalms of praise were sung primarily at two Jewish festivals. Do you know which two Jewish festivals? I bet some of you do. Passover and Tabernacles. Yeah, I heard it. Well done. Passover and Tabernacles. How fitting that because of the perfect Passover lamb and the shedding of Christ's blood, God has come to dwell in the hearts of men. Because of the perfect Passover, we become the tabernacles of God. This is being echoed in Revelation 19, in these hallelujahs. We are the tabernacles of God. We are the living temples of thanksgiving. So here, from one of those psalms, Psalm 116, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. 
O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the house of the Lord. In your midst, O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. What made worship glorious in this chapter? It's not that they were in the temple. It's the thanksgiving being offered. The Old Testament hallelujahs are being fulfilled in Christ. And Revelation 19 masterfully is is echoing that. And then the fourth and final hallelujah, that'll come in the next section of chapter 19 in the marriage supper of the Lamb. But before we go there, I want to show you one more echoing pattern in Revelation or a symmetry, a beautiful symmetry that we see. Part two of Revelation ended with the destruction of the old covenant and the unleashing of the new covenant. That was back in chapter 11. Now, in chapter 19, part 3 of Revelation, we see the same pattern emerging, a pivot moving from destruction to unleashing. So I want you to listen to all the parallels between Revelation 11, the end of part 2, and Revelation 19 and this transition into covenant realities. Both places, 19 and 11, begin with loud voices in heaven. Both places ascribe power and dominion to God. In both places, the 24 elders fall on their faces and worship. In both, God issues judgments on those who raged against him. In both, martyrs are vindicated or avenged. Both use strikingly similar phrasing. Your servants, you who fear him, small and great. In both, both conclude with the sounding of thunder. There's a symmetry, a mirroring. And I highlight this to further indicate that part two and part three of Revelation regard the same events. It's so critical to catch this. Two visions of the same reality. As Daniel had two visions of the same reality. As Pharaoh had two visions of the same reality. As Joseph had two visions of the same reality. It's a biblical pattern. And that reality is the end of the old covenant and the unleashing of the new covenant. So much of the New Testament speaks of this pivot, of this transition. So here's an example, Hebrews 8.13. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete is growing old and ready to vanish away. And as the old covenant vanishes away, a new covenant is unleashed in Christ. And so let the church cry, hallelujah, praise God, thanks be to Yahweh. And with this final hallelujah that we see in the next section of chapter 19, we really begin to see what this new covenant looks like. Look at verses 6 through 8. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So now we're in part two, marriage supper of the Lamb, part two of of chapter 19. 
So see this clearly. The marriage supper of the Lamb is what happens immediately following the fall of Babylon. The destruction of Jerusalem. In chapter 18, John heard about the fall of Babylon. In chapter 19, it begins with, After this I heard. And John hears the church worshiping. Now John hears the marriage supper of the Lamb. So you are meant to understand these things that John heard as coming in quick succession, as a, as a package of hearing, one really big element all coming together. See the theme? God divorces Jerusalem, that adulterous bride, and immediately marries the faithful bride that is the church. The old covenant is passing away. The new covenant has come. Again, the marriage supper of the Lamb immediately following the destruction of Jerusalem, or more precisely put, the marriage supper of the Lamb is a symbolic picture of the new covenant in Christ. Which means, if Jesus is your Savior, your mediator, your Lord, then you presently enjoy the marriage supper of the Lamb. You sit at table with Christ and feast joyfully. You know what? Let's let Scripture prove this. John 15, verses 3 through 4. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. 2 Corinthians eleven two. For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. And then most famously from Ephesians 5. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. All of these verses that I've just reviewed apply to today. They are not future realities. They are present realities. And so when the Holy Spirit comes to indwell the hearts of men and women, faith in Jesus Christ springs to life. And now there is a union so close, so intimate, that the very best earthly picture of it is marriage. In fact, I would say that God created marriage to be a symbol always pointing towards this new covenant reality. Therefore, your marriages are meant to reflect the way that Christ loves the church and the way that the church devotes herself to Christ. It's holy. It's self-sacrificial. It is abounding in love and in grace. It is filled with patience. It is filled with eagerness to serve. Marriage is a holy union, just as Christ and the church abide in a holy union today. 
Notice in verse 6, there's a mingling of voices. The Old Testament often describes God's voice as sounding like thunder or, or rushing water. Back in Revelation chapter 1, verse 15, it was Jesus whose voice sounded like the roaring of many waters. But verse 6 says these sounds are coming from the great multitude, from the church. The voice of the church and the voice of God have become one, are indistinguishable now. They, they have the same sound. But caution, let's be clear. It is not you who has the mouth of God. It is God who has your mouth. There is this glorious holy union that has happened. The new covenant is about the eternal union of Christ with the church. We are given the mark of Christ, right? We saw that earlier in in Revelation in the messages to the churches. But Jesus has taken our mark upon himself in his nail-torn hands and feet. We are one. And now he lives forever as the lamb who was slain. When it was us who deserved to be slain. And though we deserve that darkness, Christ has clothed us in righteousness, in light, in glory. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We become the righteousness of God? Unbelievable. Jesus has given us his own righteousness, and he took upon himself our sin. Do not the glories of the gospel of grace soar with joy immeasurable? Is there anything better than this union with Christ? But look at verse 8. Don't miss the critical detail of verse 8. Though Christ has given us garments of righteousness, we are to clothe ourselves in righteousness. In other words, Jesus died that you might be righteous. So put those clothes on. Wear them. It's not somebody else's job to wear your clothes. And so, brothers and sisters, it's by faithful obedience to Jesus, submission to him in faith, that we clothe ourselves in this righteousness. We know Christ loved us and he gave himself for us, so we love one another and we give of ourselves to one another, self-sacrificially, Is not Jesus so patient with us? Let us be patient with one another. He has forgiven us of horrible things. Look inside yourself and see how terrible those things are and know you are forgiven. And yet you cannot forgive your brother or sister. Forgive them. He works for our joy. Let's work for each other's joy. This is what union with Christ looks like. It looks like we are clothed in righteousness, in Christ's righteousness. It looks like the image of Jesus, brilliant in the face of the church. For we are being transformed into that image from one degree of glory from another, to another. And that's from the Holy Spirit. It's happening in you now. 
Hallelujah. It's happening. And he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion. Hallelujah. The final and greatest of the four hallelujahs is our union with Christ. But there's one more element to observe that brings this marriage supper of the Lamb like a lightning bolt into today. And that's what we see at this table once a month. The Lord's Supper. Communion. Every time the church takes the bread and drinks the wine, or juice in our case, we remember our union with Christ. We remember that we are the bride of Christ, that he died for us, and that we give our lives to him. We eat the bread as symbol that his body is our body, and our body is his body. We drink the juice, and we remember that he shed his blood for our sake, therefore we would happily shed ours for his. This is the feast of the new covenant, a feast of joy, a feast that satisfies, a feast that brings life forevermore, symbolized in the Lord's Supper. So we do not await some future heavenly marriage, but we enjoy it today through faith in Jesus Christ. It is now, therefore, put on Christ's own righteousness and rejoice because you have peaceful communion with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. I think that the darkest of earth's days will quickly be illuminated when we have faith in these great realities. Now look at verses 9 and 10. John is absolutely bowled over by these things. The angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. What a bizarre insertion. If, if you did this, if this happened to you and you ended up worshiping the wrong guy, would you put that in the Bible? I probably would have strategically omitted it. Yeah, this final hallelujah is too glorious for John. I think he's just so overwhelmed by the blessing of the marriage supper of the Lamb that he, he falls on his face. He begins to worship this angel. He's, he's lost some of his senses, sort of. And the angel redirects him. Worship God, not me. I'm just a servant of God as you are. But the angel says something else that is filled with unbelievable covenantal power. I'm so glad that this exchange is in the Bible for us. The angel groups John together with everybody else who holds to the testimony of Jesus. He basically groups him, you're a part of the church, right? Doesn't, isn't that what he's doing there? Everybody who holds to the testimony of Jesus makes up the church. And then he says that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit prophecy, which seems random. It seems out of place. But then, when you overlay part two of Revelation with part three, I think it comes into crystal clarity and makes total sense. Back in chapter 10, 
John was given a scroll to eat. Do you remember that? The scroll of the new covenant. He ate it in his mouth. It was sweet. It went into his stomach and it turned his stomach bitter. It nauseated him. And then John writes, I was told, listen, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. He must prophesy. John's commission is the commission of the church. Go to the ends of the earth, small and great, to all people, and prophesy, proclaim. And what is the prophetic word that John carries? The angel gives it to him so clearly. It is the testimony of Jesus Christ. The testimony of Jesus Christ is the spirit of prophecy. Therefore, what I'm about to say should blow your mind. It should blow your mind. Because in the Old Testament, in Israel, there was one, two, a few prophets out of millions of people. But because every single Christian carries the testimony of Jesus Christ, that means the entire church is filled with prophets of God. With special access to God that they could not imagine in the Old Testament. In the Old Covenant. This is the fulfillment of Moses' prayer, which he uttered in Numbers chapter 11. He said, Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Just as Christ has made us a kingdom of priests, we are also a kingdom of prophets. We are to go to all nations and prophesy or proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, the testimony of Jesus Christ, making disciples, teaching them to obey all that Jesus has commanded. You, Christian, are one of these prophets. You carry the testimony of Jesus Christ, which is the spirit of prophecy, and that spirit cannot remain silent. And this leads us beautifully, beautifully, into the next section of chapter 19 the next new covenant picture. I'm going to read verses 11 through 16. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I'm going to spend so little time on this compared to what it deserves. But notice how John just switched. He had been hearing. He had been hearing and hearing and hearing these different things. Now he goes to seeing. If you've been with us through this book of this series of Revelation, you know that this is, a, this is a literary tool. First, John hears something. It sounds like one thing, and then he looks at it, and he sees something different. But it's the same reality. It's the same 
symbolic. It's the same thing, given two symbols. And what John here, or what John sees now, is a rider on a white horse. And he looks like a, a great conquering warrior. And he has a dominion. He's a king. He's a king over all the kings. So one thing that every biblical interpreter agrees on that I'm aware of is that the rider of the white horse is Jesus. That's because we are given three names when taken together. It can only be attributed to Jesus Christ. He is the one named Faithful and True. He was given that name earlier in Revelation. He is the living Word of God. And he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Verse 12 says that Jesus possesses a name that no one knows but himself. So we don't know that name. But because we don't know the name, it reveals much to us. This unknown name reveals the transcendent divinity of Christ. So there is a name, a self-understanding, that only the infinite one can comprehend. No created being knows the unsearchable things of God. Only God knows these things about himself. And this name reminds us that there are secret things of God that our minds could never ascend to, could never comprehend, heights beyond our imagining. Yes, this writer of Revelation 19 can be no one else but God, the Son. Now, beyond the identity of this figure, interpreters quickly diverge, and we run in different directions. And to some degree, that's okay. Many in this passage see the second coming of Christ and the end of history where Christ physically defeats all of his enemies through a great battle, a battle that is often called Armageddon. And, and it, say, it make, makes the most sense be, because we want to interpret the Bible literally. And so understanding this Bible literally, that's what it seems to say. It sounds like a great battle. It seems like Christ has returned. He's defeated his foes through military means. But is it possible that there's another way to look at it? Because didn't the Jews expect the Messiah to come and defeat Israel's enemies, the Romans, through military means? And did not Jesus sorely disappoint them? So why would Christ's second coming be suddenly so militaristic? Rather, Scripture tells us that Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's Romans 14, 17. So why would we expect violence and bloodshed? In reality, nobody takes all of this section of chapter 19 literally. No one believes that Jesus is going to be shooting swords out of his mouth no one believes that Jesus is going to collect all of his enemies in a literal wine press and step on them with gigantic feet. Interpreters universally agree that these are symbols, though we might disagree on what those symbols mean. And so I would say that here in chapter 19, we are not seeing symbolism switching on and off, but that this whole chapter is bathed in the symbolic. You see, we, are, we, we will not be, we, we are not literally married to Jesus. That would be blasphemous. These are symbols. I think this great battle, likewise, is a symbol. 
So what does this great battle and the triumph of Christ that we're reading about in Revelation 19 symbolize? Just like the marriage supper of the Lamb, I believe this to be a symbol of the new covenant. Reality in the new covenant. It's a symbol of the advance of the gospel throughout the world and its effects. So bear with me. The gospel, the testimony of Jesus Christ, goes out into all the earth. The wild chaos of the earth will be subdued, will be ruled by the effects of the gospel. Now consider, what does Scripture continually symbolize as the sword? Scripture itself, right? Hebrews chapter 4, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no, no creature is hidden from its sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The word of God, like a sword, divides. First it divides the soul. So that those who receive it become like living sacrifices. And our sin is burnt away, leaving only faith refined. The word of God does that. Through the constant application of the word, the wise become holy and acceptable before God. But fools, fools do not receive the word of God and therefore divides in another way. It divides people one from another. It divides them or separates them from God. The word of God does that. Such is the sword that extends from the mouth of Christ that we see in Revelation 19. Is Jesus not the living word of God? Is not all Scripture fulfilled in him, pointing to him, finding its meaning in him? Is the sword coming from the mouth of Christ not the testimony of God become flesh, of dwelling among us, in dying in place of sinners, of defeating sin and death through resurrection, of ascending to the right hand of the Father where now he reigns with all authority and all power seated today as the King of kings and the Lord of lords? Is that not the testimony of Scripture? Yes, it is. Listen to what Jesus, the Prince of Peace, says about his divisive gospel. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. I wonder if you've tasted that in your own family. The separation caused by the gospel and these judgments that just seem to bubble up out of it, good or bad, they're just judgments there now. I know I have tasted that in my family. That's the sad reality As the gospel goes out, as it advances, it will set people against one another. But we must remember, brothers and sisters, that it is not flesh and blood that we war against, but it is against those spiritual forces constantly working to keep people bound by sin and by darkness. Even still, I think what we're being shown here in Revelation 19 and onward 
is that eventually, as this gospel goes out, it will win. The gospel will win. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Like Habakkuk 2.14 says, The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And the glory of the Lord is perfectly seen in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus, listen to this, Jesus' life is so incredibly powerful that just hearing about it will transform the world. That's incredible. It will conquer the world. Just the proclamation of the gospel will conquer the world. And I think, I believe, that this is what the Old Testament is pointing to everywhere you look. Psalm chapter 2, sort of a collage of that chapter. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. That itself is a prophecy, a proclamation. Jeremiah 23. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he shall be called. The Lord is our righteousness. In that passage, Jesus conquers not by war, but by righteousness, by bringing the peoples into his righteousness. Isaiah 49, Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. From Hosea. Therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. Can you see that? Revelation is absolutely embedded with this Old Testament, Old Covenant symbolism. In the New Covenant age, during the prophethood of all believers, the enemies of God are slain by the testimony of Jesus Christ. How does that happen? Boy, you should know. Because the enemies of God are subdued either by submission to the gospel, just as we were, or they are ruined by their rejection of the gospel. And they will face an eternity apart from God. The more the gospel gains ground, the more the kingdom of God advances, the more righteousness, peace, and joy will abound on earth. Christ will conquer the world, not with war, but with righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 15. Then comes the end. When Jesus delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and every power, 
For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. We live in that age, that new covenant age. The age where Christ is presently subduing his enemies. And we know this because we are enemies that have been subdued and because there is still death that has not yet been defeated. We live in an age of conquest for the advancement of the kingdom of God as priests and prophets proclaiming the testimony of Jesus, leading all people into the living temple of God. And that is why in chapter 19 you see Jesus riding, surrounded by all of these people wearing white robes. The church. He's the one who conquers. He is the living word. But we, the church, participate by presenting him to the world. We speak Christ crucified, for his robe is dipped in blood. And as we do so, he conquers his enemies. The word of God, who is Jesus, accomplishes all that he does by his word. Let's read the last paragraph. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against the army and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who is in the present, who in its presence had done the sights by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds of the air were gorged with their flesh. So we're reading about the second feast in our passage today. We have two feasts. One of celebrating the joy of marriage. And secondly, the birds of the air feasting upon those who have rejected Christ and fought against him and refused to repent. A feast of judgment. This passage is drawing heavily from Ezekiel 39. The birds of the air are also called to the to feast on God's defeated foes. But to be sure, we have not yet come to final judgment in Revelation. This is still about new covenant realities. To reject Jesus and his word is to receive eternal condemnation regardless of your station in life, whether you are free or slave, small or great, king or peasant. See also how the beast and the false prophet were defeated by the words of Christ. We have seen that the beast is a symbol of Rome, The false prophet is a symbol of the Jewish religious establishment. Look at history. Both have been defeated. They are gone. The Jewish religious establishment couldn't exist past the destruction of the temple. Rome's identity was thoroughly pagan and filled with violence and sexual immorality and endless injustices. And yet it converted to Christianity. And eventually it fell. Never, never again will Rome as it was in the first century or the Jewish religious establishment as it was in the first century, never again will they rise. Their destruction is eternal. And that's what chapter 
19 is symbolizing Jerusalem's eternal fall, Rome's eternal fall. We saw that earlier symbolized like Sodom and Gomorrah. Now it's being symbolized with the lake of fire, symbolizing the enduring nature of that destruction. So we are looking at, we are beginning to see in Revelation the story of our age, the one in which we live, the age of the new covenant, the age of the church, if you want to call it that. The world changed at the incarnation when God became flesh. Since then, just think about it. Since then, the gospel has defeated empires. It has spread across the planet. It has outlasted millennia. And the practical effects of the gospel are so pervasive that we have trouble seeing them. You have trouble seeing the own, your own culture, the culture that you live in. Like a fish doesn't know it's wet until it's out of the water. Hospitals. Modern science, orphanages, explosions of art and culture, universities, doing good to people outside of your tribe, all of these are inseparable from the effects of the gospel on the globe. There's a phenomenal book called Dominion, written by a best-selling author and non-Christian and not an actor who's named Tom Holland. And it traces the incredible effects of Christianity throughout history. The subtitle of his book how the Christian Revolution remade the world. Oh, he has no idea what he's saying. Maybe he does. Wow. Yeah, but you look around the world and you can see that it's not perfect. The fact remains that Jesus Christ and his gospel, they have already transformed the planet as you could never have imagined 2,000 years ago. But it's not a complete work. Not yet. Therefore, when you look around the world and you see bad things happening, and you see pain and you see suffering and you see tragedy, know that you, Christian, have been given the two most effective tools imaginable to bring these things under submission to Christ. You have been given the testimony of Jesus Christ, and you have been given the Holy Spirit of prophecy to dwell within you. For we have entered into a union with Christ. We are his bride and his body. So wherever he goes, we go. And wherever we go, he goes. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. Therefore, We are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Ephesians 1, 9 and 10. God made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him. Things in heaven and things on earth. 
This is talking about the new covenant age, the age in which we live, where Christ reigns at the right hand of the Father and where we, as ambassadors, are given the work of uniting all things in Jesus, things in heaven and things on earth, which is why we should be praying every day, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If Christ is going to come and just do that all himself, then why would we be praying it? He asked us to pray it, and then he sent us out with a great commission to go accomplish it. So that righteousness and peace and joy may abound on this earth. We are the bride. We prophesy about the testimony of Jesus. The sword will conquer this world. Next week, I'm going to spend an entire sermon looking at another picture, another symbolic image of this new covenant reality, which we call the millennium. So hopefully that piques your curiosity. We'll study the millennium next week and its effects on this earth. Father, we thank you so much for who you are, for the incredible grace that you have lavished upon your enemies to bring us into submission to Christ, that we might call him Lord and be saved. We praise you for that, Father. We did not deserve it. Praise you. Hallelujah. Now, Lord, with our lives, let us commit them to you in every way. It is simple to sit sit through some heat and listen to your word. Now stretch us, Father, to go out into a very uncomfortable world who hates you and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. We love you. We praise you. We give all thanksgiving unto you who deserve it. In the name of Jesus, amen.